evidence and answers. What is the age of the Earth? Is it billions of years old or thousands of years old? What is at the heart of this debate? How should Christians approach this issue? This was one of the issues addressed at the 2023 Evidence and Answers Conference by a panel of Christian scholars from both views. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Continuing on with our series taken from the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference, today our panel of scholars will conclude a fascinating discussion on the age of the earth. Is it possible that using that gives you an old earth because then everything looks mature? I don't know. But if you looked at Adam when he was created, you would think he's 20 or 30 years old maybe because he's a man, he's not a boy. You wouldn't assume he's just one day old or a baby because he's a mature man, he's complete. Is it possible you can copy-paste that to the, to the universe, say it's mature, complete, big? I don't know. But... I think mathematically the concepts are possible. They're possible, but uh, observationally they're not possible. In the sense that you know, if God actually did that, we astronomers would be able to see the record of what he had done. So we don't see any impulse uh, coming in uh, to the uh, universe. But we do see, and you're raising an interesting question that was the core of young earth creationism 150 years ago. This idea that, yes, the universe looks old, but it's because God made it to look old when, in fact, it's less than 10,000 years old. And the example you gave of Adam, you know, when God created him, he was full size. But it tells us repeatedly in the Bible that it's impossible for God to lie or deceive. And, you know, the height of Adam would not be an indicator of his age, because unlike the rest of us, he didn't come from the womb of a woman. So uh, God could have made him brand new, six feet tall. And so I've argued that because of what the Bible says, that God can't lie or deceive, if a scientist, a medical scientist, was there the moment Adam was born or created by God, there'd be no gray hair. Uh, he'd have a full head of hair. What? <laughs> uh, hey, be, now that's going too far. <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be no chipped teeth, no scar tissue, and that his cholesterol level would be 60 milligrams uh, per liter, uh, not 120, because that's what happens when you age. In fact, that happens quite quickly uh, when you get into your teenage years. And we look at the universe, it's not that it all appears old. But we see and look at the universe, some bodies measure to be very young, some measure to be brand new, and others measure to be uh, thousands of years old, others measure to be millions and uh, billions of years old. We see a complete range of ages. And so, for example, we see stars that have completely consumed all their nuclear fuel, and they're white dwarfs. And a white dwarf star is like a log on a fire that's consumed its fuel. And when it's consumed its fuel, it starts off a bright orange color, then it goes red, then it goes deep red, and eventually it becomes a black hole where you can actually touch it, and it's completely burnt out. One reason why this debate over whether or not the universe was trillions of years old or quadrillions of years old and billions of years old is if it was quadrillions of years old, we see the universe filled with black dwarf stars. We don't see any black dwarf stars at all. The universe is way too young for there to be any completely burnt out stars. Lots of white dwarfs, 
When we look at the white dwarfs, we see that they have all different stages of cooling. Some have just started to cool, and some have been cooling for billions of years, and then we see a complete range in between. So I think that's evidence that God is not creating with the appearance of age, the fact that we're seeing a full range of ages at objects in the universe that range from zero all the way to 13.79 billion years. Yes, we're going to take this time now. James has got the roving mic. I'm sure some of you have got some questions out there for our panelists. So let's go right away. And if you got a question for one of these guys, raise your hand, and James will bring the mic to you. Are there any UFOs possibly out there or aliens? Yes. One of the uh, 23 books I've written is uh, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men. And uh, I was an amateur astronomer before I became a professional astronomer. And that's quite rare amongst professional astronomers. So every institution I served at, they said, you get to handle the UFO reports. <laughs> so unwillingly, I wound up becoming an expert on UFOs. But what I've written in Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, one thing we know for sure, it's not beings like us coming to us from another planetary system. Why? Because that would violate the laws of physics. We're just talking. The laws of physics haven't changed. Those laws of physics are going to apply to aliens just as much as they apply to us. And when you travel through interstellar space, space is not empty. It's filled with particles. And if you're moving, say, at one-tenth the velocity of light, uh, E equals mc squared, you get a lot of damage on your spaceship. And so this has actually been taken into account because astronomers now want to actually send spaceships to the nearest planet outside of our solar system. That would be the planet orbiting Alpha Centauri, four and a quarter light years away. Uh, but they recognize that it's not going to be possible to send a big spaceship there because if you move it at one-tenth the velocity of light or two-tenths the velocity of light, it'll be completely destroyed by the particles. So the plan is we're going to send a 1,000 spaceships to that nearest uh, planet outside of our solar system, but the spaceships are all going to be smaller than 10 centimeters across. If they're smaller than 10 centimeters across, uh, there's a possibility that some of those spaceships will only be partly damaged and still be able to send back some useful information. The anticipation is, well, 600 of them will be destroyed. The other 400 will be damaged but they'll be damaged in different ways and we'll get back some useful information. But what that tells us, you're not going to send a being as big as us. In fact, you can't even send a termite. A termite's not going to make it in a spaceship that small. Now, there is a way you could actually traverse interstellar space and keep beings the size of us alive, but you would need a spaceship as large as our moon because now you can provide adequate protection. But now you've got the challenge. How do you move something as big as the moon across <laughs> interstellar space at a high velocity uh, where the spaceship itself remains intact enough uh, that beings on board? Bottom line is we're not being invaded by physical beings like us. On the other hand, what we're noticing with the UFOs, there's over 2,000 documented cases where multiple observers actually see the UFO going through the atmosphere which means we can track its path and its velocity. And the velocities run from 5,000 to 15,000 miles per hour. But the observers always report no sonic booms. 
and no heat friction. Now, I've seen the space shuttle go through the atmosphere. You get this long streak of heat and light behind it because of the friction when it engages the atmosphere, and you hear two loud sonic booms. UFOs, never been a sonic boom, never been the observation of heat friction. And in 2,000 cases where they have this kind of data, where they actually see the UFO crash into the ground, you go to the crash site, there's a crater. If there's snow, the snow is melted. The vegetation is damaged. But when you go to the crater site, there's no debris, there's no artifacts. If we're dealing with something that was physical, there'd be artifacts. On the other hand, the fact that you see a crater, melted snow, damaged vegetation, tells you something real caused that. This is not just a delusion. We're dealing with non-physical reality. And one of the professors I had at the University of Toronto was Carl Sagan. And we had a discussion about UFOs. And he said, they just don't exist at all. But here's the difference. His worldview did not tolerate the possibility of non-physical reality. As a Christian, my worldview does. I mean, God has created realms outside of this universe. Angels dwell in a realm very different than ours. And so, and by the way, I'm not the only physicist who's written on this subject. Six physicists have spent more than a decade studying the UFO phenomena. I'm the only one that's a Christian. The other six are not. But what's interesting, they all agree with me, we're dealing with a trans-dimensional or interdimensional phenomenon. Uh, Jacques Vallée, the French astrophysicist, who's put the most time into this research, says, we're dealing with interdimensional beings. Well, the Bible talks about interdimensional beings. They're angels. The other thing we notice about these UFO phenomena, the only people that have the real encounters I say that because 99% of what people reported to me as UFOs, I can explain as a natural phenomena, a hoax, or military activity that's being kept secret. But there's 1%, and that 1% falls in this category of non-physical reality. But the only people that have these encounters are those with open doors to the occult. You close the doors of the occult, that's the end of your UFO experiences. And so... We argue that ours is a scientifically testable model. Open up doors to the demonic activity and the occult. Don't be surprised if you're having these close encounters with UFOs. Close all the doors, that'll be the end of your UFO encounters. It also explains why so many more people in France are having these encounters than people in the U.S. The level of occult activity is an order of magnitude greater in France than it is here in the U.S., it also explains why when I went to the Soviet Union in the 1980s to speak, there was a huge number, large percentage of the population were having these UFO encounters. But there was also a time when the Soviet Union was sponsoring research on occult mm-hmm. physics. Now that they're not, uh, the level of UFO experiences has uh, exponentially dropped. Mm-hmm. There's a direct correlation. Well, you know, I I find this very interesting. Outside my formal studies in philosophy, the area that I've spent the most time studying is the occult. And you can even build the argument. I'm sure Hugh could do this. You can build the argument even stronger because if you look at the worldview that people begin to embrace in their encounter with these extraterrestrials, it's, it's basically the worldview of the occult. So in the 19th century, 
these experiences would be characterized in these religious categories. Hey, an angel came to me and took me to heaven or whatever. In the 20th and 21st century, an extraterrestrial came to me and took me to his UFO. But if you read the conclusions that these experiences lead the recipients to come to about the nature of reality, it's very, very similar. And, it's, and, it, and you can show biblically that it's, it's the same message, the same lie that Satan gave Eve, uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You don't really die, which is either you're dead. And it, the biblical doctrine of death is Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto man to die once, and after this, the judgment. In the occult, you'll see, well, you just die once, but there's no judgment. That would be like Satanism. Or others would say, no, you die over and over again. And so you get the, which is reincarnation. And you get both of those messages out of these uh, occult encounters. So, uh, and, and of course, Jacques Vallée gives a lot of credence to it as someone right. who's not really trying to prove a Christian point. Uh, by the way, the, the character in Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind is loosely based on Lacombe, the character in there, the French scientist, is loosely based on Jacques Vallée. You get a picture of Jacques Vallée and his attaché, and then the clip from the movie, and they look exactly alike. So that was, that was deliberate. But I think, it's, I think he was exactly right, that these things are more easily explained as, a, as probably demonic activities rather than actually literal physical extraterrestrials. I would like to give a word of affirmation to Evan, because what I see Evan doing is what we're all supposed to do, which is to test for truth. And Evan, I love the fact that you've been taught engineering. You've been taught some a significant body of information from the Institute for Creation Research. And you're taking your knowledge from engineering to try to build a model that works. And honestly, model building is partly how Hugh, I'm his wife, so I can say this right. Okay. <laughs> so, not so Evan's Hugh, wife, you're Hugh's Yeah, not wife. Evan's wife. Yeah. I'm way too old to be Evan's grandmother. But anyway, um, yeah, just building, building models is how scientists test for truth. So I love the fact that you have commented on how you are exploring ways to use what you've learned from your engineering training to build a viable model that fits. To me, that deserves an applause. And I, I want to say Thank you. Yeah, good man. Uh, I have a question. I actually sent several through the app in the book, but... Anyway, so I guess this pertains to young earthers. So there's biblical figures that have lived in the Bible, like for 500 years. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> so then how does that affect the young earthers point of view? Because then you have all these people living for, I don't know, like in sequence right. yeah. and they make up like a couple thousand years or whatever it is. All of a sudden, like Christ was born over 2,000 years ago. How do you... I yeah, this is a good question. You know, there are, it, there's nothing in the scriptures that say all of these people lived that long. There's basically 10 of the patriarchs whose life expanse is amazingly long. So without further argument, one couldn't conclude that everybody lived to be these old ages. We just know of these 10 specifically. And it's interesting that Abraham, who's not that far removed from some of these patriarchs chronologically, was was amazed that he could have a child at 100 years old. 
when you would go, well, if everybody was living to be seven to 800 years old and they're all having children, children, why would Abraham all of a sudden be startled when God says, you're going to have a child? And he's like, I'm 100 years old. How am I going to have a child? So that, to me, seems to be an indication that even Abraham understood that these long lifespans, taking them at just prima facie to be exactly what they are, what they seem to be, rather, was unusual or was more the exception than the general rule. And so whatever that exception is, I'm not sure. I'd have to kind of process it a while. But I think it's the mistaken assumption that many people have made is because we've listed, the Bible lists these particular people living so long that that's just the way everybody was. I mean, there were models built on that before the flood. There was, there was less radiation and people, and then at the flood. I'm not sure that works. But at any rate, I think it's only just those ones that are listed that actually lived that long. Can I interject here? But you're asking how, how is it, if you put them all together, how does that account for the six to 10,000 years? That's what you're asking, right? Yeah. I mean, the one that lived the oldest died before the flood. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so Methuselah lived six, uh, 969 years. If you look in Genesis um, right after Noah, you'll see there's a, there's a verse that talks about how God limited mankind's age to about 120 years. It's in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, James, so since we're running out of time, let me come to the last question here. I forgot who stated it, but you said that this debate has been going on for centuries, and the dialogue has been quite cordial mm-hmm. until, what, the last century? Right. Well, what happened here to make the dialogue go this route? Charles Darwin. I mean, that, that, the debate did not become acrimonious until uh, people were saying, hey, looks like evolution explains the whole history of life. We don't need God to be involved. Natural selection, mutations, gene exchange explains it all. And, of course, that goes completely counter to what the Bible tells us, that God is the author of all life. He's the creator of life. And so naturally there's a strong reaction. The problem was you had some Christians saying, the way we're going to close the door, we're just not going to give the scientists the time they need to make these models work. But, you know, when I was reading the astronomical literature during my teenage years, What I saw was a universal consensus. If it's billions of years, there's no way we can save Charles Darwin. We need way more time than that, at least a thousand times as much time. It's the biologists that had the delusion that they could make it work in billions of years. The physicists and the astronomers that are actually working with real numbers, you know, let's actually put the numbers into the equations and see what we can get, they quickly recognize this isn't going to happen. Uh, to give you one example, uh, Britain's most famous mathematical physicist of the early 20th century was Sir Arthur Eddington. And he was a bitter opponent to Big Bang cosmology. And he wrote, hey, the Big Bang is philosophically repugnant. It just doesn't give us enough time uh, to make evolution work. Therefore, we've got to throw it out. But what happened in the latter part of the 20th century, observational measurements by astronomers said, it's Big Bang. It's not steady state. There really is a beginning uh, to the universe. And you made a comment earlier about how before Big Bang cosmology, there was this perception the universe was infinitely old. That was because of Isaac Newton. Mm. Interestingly, Isaac Newton was a devout Christian. Mm-hmm. But after his death, people kind of looked at his Newtonian mechanics and saying, if this explains all the mechanics of the universe, the universe must be billions of years old. Mm. On the other hand, in the latter part of the 19th century, they said, we must be missing something. It can't just be Newtonian mechanics, because we're seeing things that don't quite fit. 
particularly the orbit of Mercury. Uh, that was recognized even in 1850, that we've got a problem with Mercury that Newton can't explain. You know, that's kind of how science works. We see these little tiny discrepancies in our understanding, the models we're talking about. You look at those little anomalies and you say, are we missing something? That's how general relativity was discovered. Hey, when we put general relativity in, it fixed the problem of Newtonian mechanics. And I've been on record saying we may be adjusting general relativity. We know it explains the dynamics of the universe at the 20 places of the decimal, but we haven't gotten to the 40th decimal place yet. When we go that far out, we might discover we need to make a tiny adjustment to general relativity. So, and the physicists always understood that. Uh, the Christians uh, during the 19th century said, okay, Newton explains everything. We got a problem with the Bible. And uh, we don't think that's possible. We must be missing something. Yeah, so uh, Richard, we're going to have you close us off here. All right. So summarize with us what the two positions have in common, what they share. And do you see a day when you see the two sides coming together? I've been at a lot of conferences where it can be pretty heated. and I, I, People in the audience leave crying in tears. But do you see a day when these two viewpoints will be coming together. Yeah, let me take them in reverse order. Yeah. What I would consider to be satisfactory coming together is coming together in the sense that we can have these dialogues without mm-hmm. dividing over them, not coming together in the sense that one side's going to win the debate. I don't have that hope even for the Calvinists and Arminians. Okay? <laughs> and they've been at it maybe longer than the old earth and young earth have been at it. So in other words, it doesn't matter to me sometimes that these things are ultimately settled to everybody's satisfaction. But at least pending that ultimate settling it to everyone's satisfaction, that we can sustain our differences in the context of Christian love. So that I would be happy to see that day. I think it's possible to do. I know that there's a growing number of young earth creationists who are trying to make that happen, even before they make the advances in the debate itself. They're trying to make advances in the way in which the debate is conducted. We tried to do that at Southern Evangelical Seminary by having both old and young earth uh, creationists who are scientists, biologists, and geologists, and astronomers come and give presentations. As far as the first question, I think Hughes already outlined some of the things that we share in common. We are in solidarity against the theistic evolution. We're in solidarity in terms of the historicity of the days of Genesis and Adam and Eve. Uh, Norm Geiser, who formulated our doctoral statement, is our co-founder at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Because if you ask Dr. Geiser, well, how do you regard the days of young earth, old earth debate? He said, well, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm young earth, and Tuesday, Thursday, I'm old. You know, he would, in other words, to him, it was something that was not a hill he was wanting to, to die on. He's let others carry that debate. So in the, in the interest of, of sending a, a signal to the readers on our doctoral statement that, they were, that we were open to both camps, he worded it that you had that our doctoral statement was the six historic days of Genesis. Well, that wasn't enough because so many people took that to mean, oh, you mean literal 24 hours? No, it can be historic even if it's a long period of time. In fact, it's no less historic if it's long period of time than if it's 24 hours. So both the young earth and old earth regard these days as historic. We regard Adam and Eve as historic and not mythologies. So those are the things. And of course, you can, from that, you can begin to satisfy to yourself the fealty that both camps have to the gospel. 
That is to say, people like you and Fuzz Rana and the other team at RTB and other people at the Discovery Institute, at least the Christians that are there, it's not exclusively a Christian organization, are committed to the deity of Christ, the supremacy of the gospel, and these kind of things. So that's, of course, that's our, our main thing there. We are in solidarity in that regard. All right. Hey, let's hear it for our panel here. A great discussion. today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, hey, hey.